Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to our webinar series on COVID-19, which happens uh, every Wednesday afternoon. Um, um, I'm sad to say this is the last part of this five-part series. Uh, and um, that doesn't mean what we are talking about today any less important. In fact, it's probably one of the most important part uh, about infection control. Um, now, to speak about infection control, we, we have a pro very prominent infection control practitioner and ID specialist, uh, Dr. Shash Prof. Sashila from University of Malaya. But before I introduce her officially, uh, I think we all have to remember now that uh, as more COVID patients are being nursed in other hospitals or hybrid hospitals, uh, every hospital will have to adjust its infrastructure and its facilities and its human resource issues to deal with this uh, pandemic. Uh, while we are all excited with the vaccination program that has just started last week, I think all of us know that the impact of this on the bigger pandemic in the country will take quite a bit of time. So I think we will probably remain in this mode, hopefully with no big surges coming going forward for the next six months, if not longer. Uh, so I think COVID will be with us for quite a while still. All right, so we need to double down and continue to protect our healthcare workers. Hopefully all of us will get the needed vaccination in the next couple of weeks very soon. Nevertheless, I think infection control remains a very key uh, part of our treatment uh, package. As you know, no vaccination is 100%. Uh, there have been even cases of reinfections happening, even though those thank thankfully those numbers are small. So with that as a background, uh, let me introduce uh, Prof. Sashila, somebody we know very well. I think she has spoken on this topic in a different context during the early part of this pandemic. Uh, of course, she's an ID physician. She trained uh, initially her early years of MO ship was with uh, Ministry of Health. And then she moved on to greener pastures. And I, put, I put greener pastures with inverted commas in case the UN people get too excited. Um, over to Yustin Malaysia, where she did her master's of medicine and then later on uh, in her infectious disease training. Uh, she has a very strong interest in infection control and she's the head of the infection control program she runs that program at UMMC. Uh, she's also very actively involved in our in antimicrobial resistance program uh, nationally. Um, and uh, she has been very active in talking about public education and healthcare worker education on uh, infection control and also AMR. But today she'll be talking about infection control and infection prevention in the COVID ward context. Uh, I'm sure she'll tell us what is the current thinking now and what is the most ideal package uh, of infection control that we should have. But I'm very certain she is also very aware that some of the hospitals that are looking after COVID now may not have the most ideal infrastructure because of course hospitals were built way before COVID ever came to Malaysia. So with that as a background, uh, please welcome uh, uh, Prof. Sashila to, to the podium and we will listen to her presentation and please get onto Slido to send your questions, uh, which we will hope we will deal with at the end of the program. With that, uh, thank you once again for joining us this morning. Uh, this afternoon, Sashila, the mic is yours. Thank you very much, Tato, for the, for the kind introduction. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I do agree with you that, you know, though we have vaccines coming up and COVID seems to be going down, 
but infection prevention is still paramount in preventing uh, further infection and um, uh, also new infections from occurring. So I will start with my presentation. So I'll be talking on infection prevention and control in COVID wards, but I'll be talking in general too about infection control. And I'm happy to take any questions after that, uh, you know, if, uh, for more elaborations on, 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 on this topic. And, you know, uh, it is a very big topic and, and uh, so I'll, I'll get started. Um, so the, this, is, this is the content of my talk today, uh, uh, a bit about transmission and the infection control uh, measures that we need to take. So just a bit of background, infection control and prevention is actually a, practic is a practical evidence-based approach which prevents patients as well as healthcare workers from being harmed by avoidable infection. In any um, workplace or healthcare setting, there's a hierarchy in control of hazards. That includes infection, infectious hazards as well. The most effective thing is elimination of that hazard, that pathogen, uh, substitution, followed by engineering control, administrative control, and PPE. So if you look at the context of infection, infectious diseases, elimination and substitution is removal and prevention of the entry of a pathogen. And that can be quite difficult, but doable, but it's one of the most difficult one. And then there's engineering control and um, which is hospital design and set up to remove or reduce the opportunity for a pathogen exposure at, uh, at the source before it comes in contact with the healthcare worker. Administrative controls is nothing but our work uh, policies and uh, SOPs to prevent um, infectious infection transmission in a hospital. And PPE or personal protective equipment is to uh, prevent uh, pathogen exposure by using uh, uh, personal protective equipment. Um, so when we design on, on uh, infection control measure uh, for a particular disease, there are certain things that we need to consider. The first thing is, of course, the mode of transmission of that pathogen. And since we're talking about COVID-19, the pathogen is SARS-CoV-2 and it's a respiratory virus. The mode of transmission is person-to-person -person transmission via respiratory droplets, which are carrying the SARS-CoV-2 virus through uh, coughing or sneezing or talking or breathing. So this uh, virus, you know, there's a high viral shedding in the person who's infected. And uh, these dro respiratory droplets can cause an infection when they are inhaled or deposited on the mucous membrane or nose of the um, person that is uh, uh, the susceptible person. So the mode of transmission, the three main modes of transmission are droplet um, in, in close range and direct and indirect contact when the droplets fall onto a surface or a hand of the infected individual and, and the susceptible person touches that uh, contaminated surface or the infected person themselves or is in close range. Another mode of, of transmission is airborne and airborne transmission is uh, basically uh, due to aerosolizing procedures in a clinical setting. It is believed that um, you know, that's how it's generated, aeros small aerosols. But in a non-clinical setting, uh, in, in, um, this aerosol production uh, depends on the momentum of the expelled respiratory secretion, basically coughing versus talking, and the surrounding airflow, which is very important. So. Uh, is there any airflow? How uh, stagnant is the, is the air or ventilation in that area? So these are the modes of transmission of, of uh, coronavirus as we know it now. 
The other thing that we need to consider when thinking of infection control and prevention is the incubation period and the infection infectivity of the of the of the virus. So the incubation period is basically uh, the period between the time of exposure to when the virus develops, uh, when, when the susceptible person develops symptoms. So it ranges from one to 14, but on average it's five to six days that the person becomes uh, symptomatic, uh, but it can be as long as 14 days. And that's why we say, you know, uh, home surveillance for 14 days to wait and see whether a close contact gets symptoms. Now, the infectious period, as you all know, uh, the main problem if, that made it very difficult for us to contain this disease is they have a pre-symptomatic phase or, or infectious period occurs during a period when they are asymptomatic. So in, in the, the infectiousness is believed to occur 48 hours before symptoms on, onset in a person who's symptomatic. And in a person who's asymptomatic, it potentially begins two days after exposure. But if you do not know the time of exposure uh, is unknown, then we take 48 hours before the date of specimen collection. So this information is very important because when we do contact tracing, uh, we need to know all this so that we, we can go back and contact trace uh, the people who would be deemed as close contacts. We don't start on the day that the person became positive or symptomatic, but we take two days before that, those people who came in contact two days before that period of symptom onset. The other thing we need to know is the risk of transmission when we decide on what are the infection control measures we want to take. So we know that the transmissibility of this virus depends on the amount of viable uh, virus that is shed or expelled. So this mainly depends on the clinical presentation. So someone who's symptomatic will probably be shedding more than someone who's asymptomatic. And of course, the infectious period. It is believed that the virus, uh, you know, we shed the virus, uh, you know, mainly uh, within 11 days. Uh, people have gone up to 20 days as well, but these may not be viable or replicating viruses. Uh, but the maximum amount is usually seen during the pre-symptomatic phase, just be before you become uh, um, symptomatic, as well as up to five to seven days. The type and duration of contact is also very important. So depending on how long you are in contact with the, with the uh, positive person, uh, and was it prolonged, and was it a close contact? And also where did this exposure occur, in what sort of setting and circumstances? For example, indoors versus outdoors, in a crowded area, inadequately ventilated compared to a spacious area. The other thing is what infection control measures uh, were in place during that time. Were you wearing a mask or not wearing a mask? It is unclear whether SARS-CoV-2 virus might also spread to aerosol transmission in the absence of aerosol generating procedure in the healthcare setting. So there's a lot of debate about whether it's aerosol or non-aerosol. We all know it's a spectrum. The droplets turn to aerosol depending on the nature of how it was expelled or in the condition that you were in the airflow, whether you're in a confined space. But as far as we know for now, in a healthcare setting, aerosols or aerosol or airborne potential occurs when there is aerosol generating procedure. However, outside the medical setting, maybe in a confined place and in the community, there's increased risk or outside of a clinical area, for example, in the pantry, there's increased risk of aerosol transmission if you're in a crowded or inadequately ventilated space and there's prolonged 
exposure in close proximity. For example, having uh, dinner or lunch in, in a small pantry uh, without your mask on for more than 15 minutes, talking loudly uh, in close proximity. This will increase the risk of transmission. The next thing we need to know is what are the sources of SARS-CoV in the healthcare setting, since we're talking about healthcare setting today. One is, of course, the patients themselves, visitors, the accompanying person. The next source is, of course, contaminated surfaces, um, you know, uh, door handles, keyboards, beds, and, of course, healthcare workers themselves are a source of uh, COVID, as you can see uh, reported uh, in our country and also internationally, many of these outbreaks started within the hospital from healthcare workers themselves who brought it in from the community. So for, to, to know what sort of infection prevention and control measures you need to put in, we need to understand the chain of infection. So for a chain of any infect, for any infection to occur, you need an infectious agent, a reservoir, a port of exit, mode of transmission, portal of entry and susceptible host. So in the sense of uh, COVID, the chain of infection for COVID would be the infectious agent is SARS-CoV-2, the reservoir is patient, visitors, contaminated environment, or healthcare worker. The port of um, exit is drop via droplet. Uh, mode of transmission is respiratory. Port of entry is eyes, nose, and mouth of the susceptible host. And the susceptible host would be a patient, visitor, or healthcare worker. So our aim as healthcare professionals or providers or whoever may be, is to break this chain of, of infection. And how do we do it? It is by screening, early recognition and source control, standard precaution, additional transmission-based precaution, prevention of healthcare worker to healthcare worker, administrative controls and environmental and engineering control. So the first thing is source control. So we want to contain the source to break this chain. So source control in your setting, you must make sure you have systems in place for early detection of a positive case so that you can isolate them. This is done by screening and triaging at the entry points. So in UM and also many hospitals, you know, you have your, your, your systems, in, you know, you have MySigiatra as well, which can be used. So we have a system to uh, an entry visa for um, patients, uh, for um, as well as staff and uh, also students who come into our hospital. They go through a screening process to see which includes signs and symptoms, whether there's history of exposure, and so that you can isolate these people quickly to control the source. All patients and visitors must wear a face mask. Signages and posters must be there uh, for clear instructions and directions uh, to know where they need to go, whether patients with symptoms need to go right or left, and you don't want, uh, and in, in the early stage, you're going to try and, and segregate patient people who are symptomatic or possibly have COVID from those who don't. We also, we've also put up physical barriers to reduce exposure to COVID-19 viruses, such as blinds, glasses, and plastic windows, uh, which you can see in most areas. It's very important to have a dedicated waiting area, which has a spatial uh, a separation of at least one meter and this is a waiting area in all your clinical area and even in the wards. The other thing is active surveillance and case finding of both healthcare workers and patients. So you must have a system in place whereby there's active surveillance of all healthcare workers who could be at risk of COVID, which those are returning travelers, those who have uh, asymptomatic healthcare workers with household contacts and non-hospital acquired contacts, 
must be investigated uh, and, and, uh, and, and managed accordingly. Uh, healthcare worker exposed to patients uh, with confirmed COVID need to undergo active surveillance, risk assessment, and, and, and quarantine. And patients, both inpatient and outpatients, who are exposed to other patients or healthcare workers who have confirmed COVID must also be risk assessed and quarantined and, and treated as a PUS if necessary to prevent intra-hospital transmission. And this is sometimes how we, how we saw outbreaks happening. The other thing is having a surveillance for RE and ED. Don't take this lightly. As you know, because there's community transmission, it's very important that all REs and ED are, um, you have a high index of suspicion and they are screened uh, for, for COVID. The next thing of source control is having a good design set up and engineering control. So in the places where you see patients, especially in the entry points, you must make sure that the clean areas and the dirty areas are clearly demarcated. The, acute, the RE areas are separated from non-acute respiratory areas because when the patient first comes in, you don't know whether they're COVID or non-COVID, they come in with more like respiratory symptoms and you should have engineering controls in places. So most of our hospitals, you know, uh, including mine, most of the hospitals, you know, were not built primarily for as respiratory uh, to, 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 to take care of just respiratory patients. Okay. Uh, we were not prepared for a pandemic of this, this uh, magnitude. So we had to make sure they put in a lot of barriers, including these plastic barriers in our, our ED to, uh, physical barriers to, uh, to reduce the risk of transmission. So I'm gonna talk a bit about engineering control because as I told you earlier, as we see now more and more, uh, this is one of the most important thing, I think uh, one of the most important thing in, in, in uh, preparing your hospital or, uh, you know, to, um, to fight against COVID and other respiratory infections actually. So good ventilation indoor or for us to go back to, to uh, a new norm. A good ventilation indoors reduces the risk of COVID-19 by diluting the concentration of potential infectious aerosol through ventilation with outside air and filtration and disinfection of the recirculated air. So it's very good that we have a very important that we have a good ventilation system. There are three methods of ventilation in the building, natural, mechanical, and hybrid. And I can tell you, uh, you know, as a before I go on, I have to uh, disclaimer. So uh, as you know, I'm a medical doctor and many of y'all are also probably medical doctors. So this part of, of uh, the infection control measures need to be discussed with your engineering department. You need to discuss with them and work with them in, in uh, finding out what is in your hospital and what are the improvement measures that needs to be done. And if you have an OSH team, that's even better because OSH also have been trained in, in, uh, in looking into this. So the three methods of, of ventilation in a building, natural, mechanical, and they can be hybrid. And the three basic elements to, for our ventilation is the ventilation rate, which is known as the air exchange per hour. It's the volume of outdoor air that is provided into a space in the hospital. The airflow direction should be from a clean area to a dirty zone. So meaning that if the patient is in the room, you must ensure that the airflow is from the corridor into the patient's room and not from the patient's room to your corridors air distribution or airflow pattern, there must be an efficient and effective delivery of the external air to the indoor space, as well as an efficient and effective way of removal of this airborne pollutants generated in this space. So there's a, there must be a way to get rid of these pollutants externally to an exhaust, or how is it going to 
whether it's getting recirculated back and before it gets recirculated back, is it getting filtered properly? So these are the minutes. So um, this is, uh, I forgot to tell you. So this is, uh, uh, WHO just came up with this roadmap to improve and ensure good indoor ventilation. And I think this uh, document was just produced, uh, I think last month. And it, in it, it's a very simple document to understand. And it's given both for healthcare setting as well as non-healthcare setting. And I think uh, you should take an opportunity to read it and, and read it with your engineers and to improve. And it gives very um, uh, practical uh, things that you can do. So the minimum requirement, there are a few minimum requirements for good ventilation. One is knowing the ventilation, keeping the ventilation rate to a minimum requirement. So in a uh, general ward, usually it's six air exchange per hour. So ask your, your, um, your engineers, what is your exchange, uh, air exchange rate in your wards? Because different areas will have different air exchange rates. So the air exchange rate in a, in a ward, uh, in, a iso in a general ward, in an isolation room, in, a, in, the, um, uh, in the patient's uh, clinic will all be very different. If you're performing an aerosol generating procedure, it's best to have the patient in a room which has 12 air changes per hour. In a room where there is uh, natural ventilation is used, therefore there's no mechanical ventilation, this would be the older hospitals and clinic facilities. Then it's good if you can have a cross ventilation whereby the door and the windows are open and the air is uh, moving in one direction outwards. But it's important to know the direction of, uh, of airflow. So we want the direction of airflow from clean to dirty rather from dirty to clean. So you have to be very careful if you're doing a cross ventilation or in an open area, you have to ensure that the airflow is that, that way. Uh, there are different methods to check the airflow uh, um, direction. Uh, there's the smoke test and, and different methods to do it, which you can also discuss with your engineer. Also, you need to uh, look at opportunities to increase the ventilation rate. So just say if your ventilation rate is lesser than uh, the required six or 12, then you can consider maximizing the room occupancy to meet uh, the, the liter per second uh, patient standard. Therefore, reduce the number of patients. Therefore, uh, you can uh, improve the uh, air exchange uh, the rate. The other short-term strategies is to put standalone air cleaners with HEPA filters, but this should be a kind of a short-term strategy. And it's important that you place it in the right place and uh, it has to be cleaned often, as well as you should make sure that it doesn't overtake the natural ventilation. So there are a lot of things to look into. So again, discuss with your engineers and, and Bosch. The other thing is the airflow direction to be from clean to less clean area. So it's important that we modify the functional distribution of airflow direction to minimize exposure to healthcare workers. So what this is actually saying is look at how the setup in your uh, clinic or ward is. For example, in a natural ventilation room, uh, you will see there's an air vent, the inlet. If the inlet, make sure the doctor's chair is at the inlet, not the patient's chair, because the airflow is this way. And then you have the patient's chair here, and then you have the outlet. Don't put the patient's chair where the uh, doctor's chair at the patient's area, because then you're directly causing the virus from the patient to get onto the doctor's face. So you have to work with your airflow. So make sure the doctor is sitting at the inlet, the patient is at the outlet. 
And then you can, if you're in a natural ventilation, you can also use a pedestal fan. But remember, the fan should be facing the open window. So don't put it uh, next to the doctor and make the air flow on the doctor, uh, you know, flow onto the doctor's face. It should be actually facing the window to encourage the airflow to the direction from clean to less clean. If there is a mechanical ventilation, again, as I said earlier, look at where the inlet is, make sure the doctor is sitting there and the patient is sitting here and the HEPA or air purifier should be next to the patient and then there's the outlet over there. So make sure when you go into a room and when you're setting up your, your, your consultation rooms or even your wards, you look into all this. Rooms for aerosol generating procedure, it's important to add on an empty room. So you may just have an isolation room. Not all of us have an empty room. And what's an empty room? An empty room is just an additional room between the patient's room and the corridor. So from the patient's room, you have a door, and then you have an empty room, another door, and then that's the corridor. And this one can be done as a makeshift. So you know most of our hospitals didn't have isolation rooms alone, but they don't have... Uh, uh, a negative pressure room and so on. So to, to um, maintain the airflow in its own areas, it's good uh, and it's simple to put in an empty room. You need to speak with your, with your engineers and most of our hospitals, the government hospitals and even the UN, we put up makeshift empty rooms with plastic barriers. So this way, in the corridor, the airflow is maintained here and in the patient's room, the airflow is maintained here and there's no the airflow doesn't come out to the patient's, uh, to the corridor. The important thing here is this door and this door should not be open simultaneously. So when the healthcare worker is going in, you ensure that this door is closed, open this, the, the corridor door, go in and then shut the corridor door and then open the patient's door and go in so that, so that there is no, you can call it bad flow of, uh, of bad uh, airflow. So this is uh, airborne. Ideally, it's good if we all had airborne infection isolation rooms as if you're going to do an ATP procedure. What is this? It's AAI room. AII room. This is a single patient room with a private bathroom and it's got a negative pressure. It allows air to flow from the corridors into the AAI room because of the negative pressure. It's very important to keep the doors and windows closed. And it's important that you check the pressure. And the pressure at the door here reflects the pressure in the patient's room and it should be at least negative 2.5 pascal. At least negative 2.2 pascal means it should be negative 2.2 pascal up to about negative 10 pascal, not lesser, not more than that. Airflow of, uh, in the AI room is about 12 air exchange per hour and the AI room exhaust, that means the outlet is directly to the outdoors away from any air intake or it can pass to a special HEPA filter or high efficacy particulate air filter that removes 99% of the droplet nuclei and then it gets back into general circulation. So most areas in our hospital, if it's just an isolation room, it doesn't have this uh, going to a HEPA and coming back into circulation. Many of them, many of this will just get recirculated by dilution of air coming in from the outdoors. So these are some of the things that you can do in your hospital, putting up makeshift barriers putting up empty rooms, plastic door zippers as partition to create empty room. This is our pediatric ward where our engineers and OSH department uh, put up plastic barriers, putting up HEPA filters. You can do this as a transient measure until you uh, have a more permanent plan. The other minimum requirements according to this, uh, this um, 
roadmap by WHO is air should be should be exhausted di directly outwards away from air intake vents. Air recirculation should be evaluated, and for this, you need to consult your your heating, ventilation, and air conditioning professional. Very important. It's not an easy matter. It's like uh, for doctors, we know about you know veins uh, and arteries and the nervous system. Similarly, in engineering, if you open the ceiling, you will see so many ducts, uh, you know, one going with air coming in, going out, water supply. And that's why you need to get your engineer on board to tell you what's in there. Uh, it's, uh, we should try and increase the outdoor supply. Uh, um, outdoor supply, that means the outdoor uh, supply of air that's coming in. Instill HEPA filters into the written air ducts if possible. This could be very expensive. Put in standalone HEPA filters. Uh, uh, but you know it, you need to know where exactly to put them. Uh, they must operate continuously, not off for a while. Only when patient is there, you're on it. Uh, but uh, the filtration air that is recirculated should not replace the normal ventilation. Also, the standalone HEPA filters uh, need to be um, uh, serviced frequently, as well as the efficacy will reduce as they are used for too long. You need to verify the heat recovery unit. And again, uh, about the HEVAC system, I'm not going to go into details. You can see this, this uh, slides later, but I think it's very important I just to, for me to highlight this to you so that you can discuss with your engineers and you know what, in what language to talk to them. Uh, so the next thing for us to do is to interrupt the transmission. To interrupt the transmission, we put in standard precaution, additional transmission-based precaution, as well as uh, measures to prevent infection from healthcare worker to healthcare worker. So for infection control practices, there is the standard precaution and the transmission-based precaution. The standard-based precaution is a set of common sense practices and personal protective equipment used to protect healthcare workers and patients from infections that can be acquired to contact with blood, body fluids, non-intact skin and mucous membrane. This is the minimal infection control measures healthcare workers should take at all times with all patients, irrespective of what the infection infectious status is. It is applied based on this assessment. And the transmission-based precaution is the additional precaution to standard precaution, which is needed to prevent transmission when you're treating a patient with a specific infection or colonized, if they're infected or colonized with an infectious agent. It's usually applied according to clinical syndrome uh, and coming up with a likely etiology before you know the actual diagnosis. For example, someone coming in with diarrhea, you would probably think it's rotavirus or norovirus and put them under contact precaution uh, first before you know what the diagnosis is. It is based on the three uh, type of mode of trans major mode of transmission. We have contact, droplet, and airborne. These precautions should be implemented in conjunction with standard precaution, but they may be combined because certain diseases have both uh, um, a contact with droplet component or contact with airborne and so on and so forth. So the elements of standard precaution is hand hygiene, PPE, disinfection and sterilization of equipment, environmental hygiene, linen management, waste management, spillage, infection, uh, injection safety and shops management, and respiratory hygiene and cough etiquette. All this should be uh, used for every patient that we see and not for only patients with MDRO or 
uh, infection that we know. This is for all patients. I'm not going to tell you much about five moments of hand hygiene, though it's the most important. You should perform this all the time. But what I would like to tell you is alcohol-based hand rub is preferred if the hands are not visibly soiled and the contact time is very, very important. The next is personal protective equipment. These are basically the specialized clothing or equipment that are used to protect healthcare personnel from exposure of infectious agents or body fluids that may contain an infectious agent. It is used to create a barrier that protects skin, clothing, mucous membranes, and the respiratory tract of healthcare worker from infectious agents. So we have the gloves to protect the hands, they can be sterile or non-sterile, the isolation gown to protect the patient's skin and clothing. We have the face mask and respirators, which could be a three-ply mask or N95 mask to protect your mouth and nose. And then you have your face shields and goggles to protect your eyes, face, nose, and mouth. The principles of PPU use is the selection of which PPE is based on the anticipated contamination of the healthcare's clothing and skin by patients' blood, body fluid, non-intact skin secretion and excretion. And it's the second part, part is if the patient has got a, is suspected to have an infectious pathogen, it is based on the mode of transmission. It's very important that the PPE is removed properly so that you do not uh, contaminate yourself uh, during that process. And it's very important to remember that before you leave the patient's area, you must remove the PPE and discard that PPE, except in certain conditions where extended use is warranted, but that is only very in very very specific conditions with a very strict SOP. So we shouldn't be wearing our PPE uh, you know, um, unnecessarily because people think this PPE is only to protect us, but by right, this PPE is also to protect our patients. So if you were to use a PPE for extended period and uh, from one patient to another without changing it, protecting ourselves, we could be transmitting an infection to a patient uh, due to discontaminated PPEs that we did not discard. The other thing that I would like to emphasize is glove use is not a replacement of hand hygiene. Hand hygiene must be done before and after donning and doffing the glove. This is a very important point. The next is face protection, which is mask, goggles, and face shield. This is used to protect the mucous membrane of the eyes, nose, and mouth. It does not substitute uh, your glasses. The indication is again to use when uh, you're doing a procedure that generates splashes or sprays of body, blood, body fluids, and secretion and excretion. These are some of the examples of those procedures, including emptying the urinary bag. And the other indication, if you are treating a, or a, a patient who has confirmed or suspected respiratory bone disease. It's very important that when you, the selection of your mask, goggle, face, or shield, or the combination of them is based on the anticipated contamination by the task performed and the pathogen, whether it's airborne or droplet. Always remember a soiled mask and patient should be discarded if it's soiled, and you should avoid touching your mask without hand hygiene. And if you have touched your face or your, 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 your face shield or your mask, it's important that you perform hand hygiene immediately. Reuse of face shield following SOP is allowed if uh, in certain condition, but if you have seen an infectious patient, then it is advisable that you discard it once you leave the uh, either the patient area or the ward that 
had all those infectious patients that you were using in extended wear, it should be discarded before you take it to a clean area, without taking it to a clean area. A three-ply surgical mask is used for all droplet infection, any droplet infection, so influenza, for your RSV, you need to use a face mask. In a time of pandemic like this, uh, the three-ply surgical mask is also used, should be used by all healthcare workers when they are in a clinical area, when they are with others in a confined space, prolonged contact with co-workers, meaning they are cumulatively in the time period of more than 15 minutes in a duration of 24 hours. And, um, and also all visitors, patients, and accompanying persons should wear a mask in the hospital premises. Fabric masks and non-hospital approved masks are not allowed for healthcare workers. But for visitors and accompanying patients, a fabric mask may be sufficient, but not for patients and healthcare workers. An N95 mask filters out at least 95% of airborne particles, and it should be used when treating patients with airborne disease, that's TB and measles, and also all used when performing an aerosol generating procedure in a respiratory infection such as COVID, influenza, RSV, and other uh, respiratory infections. So these are some of the uh, AGP uh, procedures. It's very important that a fit test is done to, uh, to determine whether there's a gap uh, uh, present at the scene. And the other one that should be done yearly and a fit check should be done every time a healthcare worker uses uh, the N95 mask to ensure that the respiratory is, respirator is properly sealed on the face. So this is a very important component uh, of uh, ensuring that the N95 mask is effective. As I mentioned earlier, donning and doffing, you should do it properly, especially doffing uh, should be done in a proper sequence using hand hygiene in between and the, at the end performing hand hygiene and ensuring that you do not contaminate yourself. So back to COVID-19, now that you know the background of standard and transmission-based precaution, COVID-19, as we mentioned, it's a respiratory uh, virus and it's transmitted through respiratory and contact. So the contact precaution, so the precaution that we need to do is standard contact with contact precaution and droplet precaution, including eye protection, and airborne precaution if you are being exposed to aerosols in, uh, in an aerosol generating procedure. So this, uh, so for this, there are two components, which is patient placement, where should you place your patient and choosing the right PPE for the chosen activity. This is very important that we use the PPE uh, rationally uh, during this endemic period for a variety of reasons. One is it is just good practice to use the right thing instead of just using all the PPEs. Uh, because at a time of pandemic like this, we do face a shortage. Number two, it's not very good for the environment if you wear many, many things and for no reason and, 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 and uh, discard them. And of course, if you use uh, PPE irrationally, there's a chance that we would also uh, contaminate ourselves during the doffing. For example, uh, for COVID, it's not necessary to use double glove and double glove, or um, uh, we wear multiple layers of, of gowns when that is not absolutely necessary. So patient placement on admission 
It's very important uh, the patient is at least placed in an adequately ventilated single room with a six, uh, with, which has a six air changes per hour with the attached bathroom. If the patient is performing an AGP, you should try and put them in an airborne infection isolation room, as I mentioned earlier, if you have one. If not, an adequately ventilated single room with a 12 air exchange with attached bathroom with HEPA filter if possible. And this is where you can uh, discuss with your um, with your engineering if they can put up barriers, uh, anti rooms. Cohorting is not recommended unless absolutely necessary. And if you decide to cohort, uh, you should only cohort those patients who are confirmed with the same diagnosis. So the confirmed COVID, you can put them together. Don't put a uh, suspected COVID with a confirmed COVID. Uh, that's a definite no-no or a RE with a confirmed COVID or a uh, suspected COVID. So uh, it's good to put the same diagnosis. So if you're unsure of the diagnosis, put them in a single room. If you're sure of the diagnosis, you can cohort them with the, those with the same diagnosis together. The other thing is the beds must be kept at uh, a minimum distance of one meter and a bit more if the patient needs uh, uh, you know, intensive care. Clear signages at the door to inform your healthcare worker what sort of precaution they need to take when they're going into the patient's room. The type of PPE, as you can tell, KKM uh, has come up with a very, very nice guideline and I've put in the link here. And if you go to the guideline, you can see what a healthcare worker should wear at, when they are doing uh, uh, for the different risk exposure, for the different types of activity that they do, uh, and uh, the different personnel, what they should be wearing. So please have a look at that. Uh, but I would just like to, to just mention, in, because this, this is what our talk is about, that uh, COVID for COVID-19 related uh, sort of cases, which we call we come them together as a confirmed COVID-19 or suspected COVID-19, uh, a PUS or a patient with uh, acute respiratory infection, if they are low risk, and a low risk patient is a patient who is not actively coughing, uh, doesn't need oxygen supplement, the patient is asymptomatic, and the patient is able to wear a mask, and the type of activity you're doing is direct routine care of low risk patients, such as blood taking, plucking, uh, cleaning the patient's room, uh, then you, all you need is your face mask, your shield, uh, your non-sterile glove and a full sleeve uh, water-resistant gown. You can use this for extended wear. Your mask can shield for extended wear while you're in that COVID ward or you're in that, that ward. But once, you leave, once you're got, going to leave that ward, it's important that you, that you uh, remove your PPE and discard them because this is an infectious uh, wound. Uh, to use your gown together with glass and apron at the top, but you must change your plastic apron and gloves between patients. This is very important. For patients who are high risk, these are patients of coughing, need oxygen support, are unable to wear a surgical mask, patients are ventilated, then you need to wear your N95 mask uh, with the others. For patients who uh, need aerosol generating procedure, you need to, if you have a PAPR, usually OTs use this, or uh, uh, ICUs because they need to wear the in your patient area for long periods of time. Or you can use with the N95 mask with a face shield, an isolation gown or coverall, and with gloves and boot cover or shoe cover. The other thing I like to just say is in a hospital setting, we all should wear closed shoes. Uh, 
uh, not open to you. So please check your hospital guidelines to ensure that that is one of the things that you put down in your infection control guideline or policy. Transporting a patient, uh, what are the measures you need to do? So one of the thing is avoid unnecessary movement of the patient, move them only if necessary. Uh, you need to make sure that the patient is able to wear a mask uh, when you are transporting them if you can. Uh, you should clean the patient's surfaces after you have used it, the green chair or the incubators. And before moving the patient, you should uh, plan your route and you need to see whether you need the security to clear the pathway and make sure there's uh, no visitors or, in, or it's going to be blocking your place and causing uh, contamination. And healthcare worker must uh, wear appropriate PPE when transporting and you need to notify the receiving ward so that they can be prepared. Specimen collection, uh, I'm not going to go into details, but what I want to emphasize is do not send your specimen to pneumatic tubes for hospitals that use pneumatic tube systems. You must send it by hand and you must uh, label your, your containers properly and put them in proper leak-proof specimen bags uh, because you don't want to uh, you know, contaminate your lab colleagues as well. And, um, and the personnel who's transporting this specimen should know how to manage any uh, spillages as well. Uh, Initially, if you're setting up, you probably need to notify your lab that you're sending a specimen, but uh, once you have your SOP in place, that may not be necessary. Environment cleaning and disinfectant is very important. As you know, the virus can live on inanimate objects and they have been implicated in, in outbreaks. Uh, so um, it's very important that you clean the high-touch areas, not only in, only in the patient area, but also in the common areas uh, in the in the uh, clinical area, non-clinical areas, that the telephone, these are common areas where we share our equipment. As you know, healthcare workers can bring in the infection from the community. So make sure you wipe down your uh, the computer, the uh, tables are wiped down frequently, and the phones as well. Um, the good thing is uh, coronavirus is easily killed. Uh, by the commonly used disinfectant. So you can use the normal sodium hypochlorite or bleach, bleach at 1,000 parts per minute, which is what we use for our routine cleaning. Uh, you can use 70% alcohol, isopropanol, quaternary ammonium, phenolic, ammonium chloride, and even hydrogen peroxide. Cleaning disinfection and sterilization, it's very important that all those equipment that are shared, that are cleaned and disinfected and sterilized, depending on the sprawling classification. Gross soiling should be cleaned down um, and always follow the manufacturer's recommendation on how you dilute your um, disinfectants uh, and ensure the contact time is, is maintained. So, you know, if the contact time is supposed to be five minutes, make sure it is there for five minutes and not removing it from your high level disinfectant too quickly. Items that should be disinfected after each patient, that means between patients, is your, these are the items, your, uh, if you can have a stethoscope for that patient alone, uh, preferably if you don't need to share, share it, but if you're sharing it, all these items need to be cleaned down with your disinfectant wipes or whatever uh, SOP you have in your hospital. Cleaning and uh, of isolation rooms, uh, it is important that, you know, uh, for daily cleaning or even terminal cleaning of these isolation rooms are done as per all your usual uh, 
cleaning of isolation uh, rooms. Uh, healthcare, uh, the cleaners should use their PPE properly and it should be removed before they leave the patient's room. But what I would like to highlight is terminal cleaning of rooms where there was an aerosol generating uh, procedure done. For example, in your airborne isolation rooms or in the OT or in your ICUs where there was aerosolization occurring, additional measures are required. So because of the aerosolizing potential and airborne transmission potential, you need sufficient air exchange to clear the air before the cleaning team goes in. If the cleaning team goes in immediately, they can, but they need to wear their N95 mask as if they're going in for an airborne precaution. If not, you can wait until there's clearance. For that, you need to ask again your engineers, what is the airflow in these different areas in the hospital? Is your airflow 12 air, if your airflow is 12 air exchange per hour, then you can wait up to about 35 minutes. If 15 air exchanges per hour, then to about 30 minutes. If you're not sure, then you take about 45 minutes as the time that you need to wait. Uh, so, um, and then you can go in with your normal face mask and your shield. Linen management, it's as per guideline for other communicable diseases, nothing special. Again, this is not Ebola or Crutzville-Jacobs. Uh, so you use the same uh, precaution as MDROs. Uh, but what I'd like to say is all linen should be handled inside the isolation room, not bring it out. Uh, and you should put it in a red arginate bag, just like all your other um, communicable diseases. And uh, it's important that you wear the right PPE, your surgical mask, eye protection, and long sleeve um, apron with your gloves. So about healthcare workers, it's important that your healthcare worker with high-risk conditions who are immunosuppressed should not be allowed to manage uh, and provide care for patients who are COVID or suspected COVID. You should ensure that all healthcare workers uh, have, um, have undergone their vaccination, uh, such as influenza and other routine vaccination. Uh, healthcare workers should be trained on the proper use of PPE and all the SOPs in the hospital. You should keep a register of all healthcare workers who have come in, who are treating patients with COVID and that should be under passive surveillance and active surveillance for those who had come in close contact without proper PPE. Well, when we first started out, we said have dedicated teams just to treat COVID patients. But as you know, now it's already been one year into the pandemic and, you know, it will be, it's going to be here to stay. And, you know, it probably just hopefully you're hoping that it will become another seasonal sort of uh, infection with the vaccine and everything. So I think at the end of the day, everyone needs to know how to at least, uh, at least know what to do when they are confronted with a patient with COVID and know how to manage them. Patients, uh, healthcare workers who have symptoms, there should be a low threshold for them to not come to work or inform the supervisors and seek medical attention immediately uh, and get a swab done if necessary. Visitors uh, to co for COVID patients is definitely no. And uh, you know, I'm not gonna go through all this, but it's, there are times when uh, COVID patients, uh, we do allow uh, visitors to come uh, this is for you know, when it's end of life and we want to see the loved ones. Uh, during those conditions, it is done under very strict measures uh, where patients, uh, the visitors are screened, uh, they, are, they are counseled, uh, they are told how to use or taught how to use the PPE and they're not allowed, they, they are advised and they are told not to go anywhere else. And then they are also uh, are told to, to put themselves under surveillance if they develop any uh, symptoms during the next 14 days.
I, I would like to highlight this. I mean, this slide was actually put up for my medical students, but I was thinking, you know, we, we emphasize so much on COVID, 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 but in our one year, we all know as healthcare professionals, a patient doesn't come to you and say, I'm COVID. They come in many forms. They come as a diabetic with ulcer. They come as a cellulitis. They come as an appendicitis. Uh, you know, they could come in as anything. They could come in as dengue. So it's very important when we plug our patients, uh, you know, we should make sure that the patient is well. We should assume that everyone could possibly be a first encounter. Uh, we should ensure that the patient is masked, and you are masked. And you should make sure that you ask the patient your screening questionnaire. I know the patient may have filled up the screening questionnaire, but it's good for you to put that as part of your clocking. You know, do you have these following symptoms? Have you come in contact with someone with COVID? Have you come in, you know, gone for a gathering which you think that might have some COVID, uh, a COVID case? So it's very important for you to bring this up. Even if someone else has clocked the patient, I think it's important if you see the patient for the first time, it's good to bring up uh, or bring this up again. Uh, and I can't tell you how important that is because we have missed a few patients just because, uh, you know, at screening, it was fine. And when they reached the ward, suddenly they found out a relative of theirs was uh, positive uh, and, and no one elicited that history once the patient came back, came to the ward, assuming that, you know, that history was already taken. taken. It's always important to try and maintain a one meter distance with patient, except when close physical contact is needed. Uh, so, you know, when you're taking a history, try to maintain that distance, except when you're doing a physical examination, or conducting a procedure, administrating a medication. That, this doesn't mean don't be cold towards the patient. We should always still be empathetic and uh, perform our duties as we should, but we should do it in a safe manner. And always follow your SOPs and use your PPE accordingly. I'm not going to go through this, but I also just want to say again, you know, again, patients with COVID will not come to you as COVID. For all other patients that you don't suspect, you know, uh, anyway, always follow your standard precaution. And if you follow this standard precaution, you wear a mask, the patient wears a mask. If the patient cannot wear a mask, you wear a mask and a face shield. Maintain your distance. You will significantly reduce the risk of COVID transmission in your hospital. Now, uh, now that everyone has started getting vaccinated, the question is what PPE do we use for COVID vaccine administration? So WHO has a guideline and they state standard precaution, which is your hand hygiene and based on your risk assessment. And the staff must wear masks and the recipient must wear a mask. And they have stated that additional PPE is not indicated since there's no splash or body fluid exposure risk during an intravascular injection. Our uh, Malaysian guidelines and CDC has an additional thing which says eye protection, which is face shield or goggles, is recommended based on the current community transmission. So, uh, so this is our guideline, you obviously kind of just modified. Uh, you can use your own guideline, KKM also has a guideline. Um, I'm just putting it up because this is my guideline. Uh, hand hygiene should be used before and after patient contact and during vaccine preparation. Surgical face masks should be changed if soiled or contaminated and perform hand hygiene before and after touching masks. And eye and, eye and face shield protection, change of soil, disinfect and store according to protocol if otherwise. Not routinely required, but you may use a gown or glove only if direct contact with blood, body fluids or non-intact skin is anticipated and based on your risk assessment. 
It's very important that you ensure that the surfaces and shared equipment are wiped in between patients. So the other things in our hospital, you know, we've talked so much about healthcare workers protecting themselves against uh, COVID from patients, but the other thing is from each other. So important that we always uh, perform uh, hand hygiene, you know, at a meeting, before a meeting, after a meeting, before your CME, after a CME, before you use your patient's, uh, your friend's computer, after you use your friend's computer, if you're sharing a phone, uh, you should do it. Always wear a face mask in a clinical area or when you're in with others. Uh, disinfect shared workspaces and equipment that includes clinical area and non-clinical areas. Avoid direct contact when beating others. And limit the number of patients uh, in the uh, persons in the pantry, food stalls, prayer, prayer area. Uh, when you're walking together, maintain a distance. In the lift, maintain a distance. Uh, you know, uh, limit the number of people doing rounds. Uh, you know, nowadays, you know, we limit the number of people doing what rounds to, to the minimum. And we do a lot of uh, virtual meetings uh, now. The other thing is that uh, we need to consider is improving the ventilation. So if your pantries are very crowded, uh, and small or your meeting rooms might need HEPA filters and we looking into your ventilation system. Education, training and communication of the disease uh, for all healthcare workers, uh, not only clinical staff is very important to ensure that, uh, because as you know, COVID uh, has infected even our clerks and uh, because it comes from the community. So everyone should know about COVID and how to prevent it. We should not forget our cleaning staff and contract staff, you know, other contract staff like uh, food contractors, people who do our laundry. Uh, this is very important that they are also, uh, they are also our community in our hospital, part of our healthcare workers. So it's important that they are also included in all our guidelines and SOP and training. Psychosocial support is very important as well. And this is one of the most important thing at a time of shortage. And, you know, I think it's good habit for us to to also make sure that you know what what this pandemic has taught us that it's very important that we monitor our quality of our PPE and our usage of our PPE. Uh, you know now we have started to do fit tests for all our staff uh, to know what size they, they should wear, what brand is good for them, and uh, you know knowing uh, what are the different PPEs that we have and ensuring that management has enough of these PPEs and infection control. Uh, stock stuff. The other thing that's very important is, you know, we put in a lot of guidelines and also peace. We just like hand hygiene audits. We also need to audit the compliance of uh, um, people adhering to their PPEs, social distancing, how they're using the pantry. In our hospital, we have a, a monitoring system for that too. So now, now I think most of you will be asking is, yeah, we put in all this uh, PPE and we put the patient, isolated them in this room. When should we de-isolate them? When can we stop using the PPE or transmission-based? Standard precaution can never be stopped. Transmission-based precaution, when can we stop that? So in a symptomatic patient, the criteria for de-isolation of a confirmed COVID-19 is at least 10 days have passed since symptom onset and at least 24 hours have passed since resolution of fever without the use of fever-reducing medication and improvement of other symptoms. Severe illness may warrant extending up to 20 days, uh, and severely immunocompromised patients may go beyond 20 days and may require additional tests. 
for symptom, uh, for, sorry, I'm very sorry about this. This is asymptomatic patients. It's 10 days after the first positive RTC-PCR. No COVID-19 test is required before patient is discharged from the ward or hospital. You must use standard precaution at all times. Now we'll be seeing, well, we'll be seeing more and more patients returning after discharge from COVID-19 care. Uh, for patients who are previously diagnosed with symptomatic COVID-19 and who remain asymptomatic after recovery and has already met the criteria to end isolation, pre-testing is not recommended within these 90 days after the date of onset of illness or within 90 days of the first positive SARS test results if they were asymptomatic during the initial infection. So within the 90, just to put it simply, within the 90 days, if they remain asymptomatic, do not retest. And they fulfill the de-isolation criteria, do not retest. Uh, use standard precaution for these patients. Uh, a lot of all this paraphernalia, you can get it in the KKM website. Uh, this is a post-discharge plan. It's good for you to have a look at it to give your patients. Uh, I've got one more uh, last slide before I end. You know, the question is, you know, airborne precaution, aerosolized, am I safe with just wearing a normal mask? Uh, and what actually does this aerosol mean? So I think uh, this, this video that I'm showing, uh, he's going to show here is uh, done by the New, uh, University of New South Wales. And basically uh, uh, they looked into the different um, ways that the respiratory viruses are expelled from a person, talk counting, sneezing, coughing, and they compared it with between uh, not wearing any mask, a cloth mask with uh, one um, layer of protection, a cloth mask with two layer of protection, and a surgical face mask. So I'd like you to have a look at it. Pay attention to you know, how much of this uh, respiratory secretion is coming out and how uh, also the how you know and, and how long it takes for it to settle, meaning you know it's floating in the air, it's, it's quite prolonged in, in those who had some sort of protection compared to those who had none. No cloth mask, cloth mask one layer, two layers, and, and like, uh, three, uh, three five surgical masks. So this is counting one, two, three, this guy's going up to four, they're all counting four now. And you can see here the aerosols are dispersed very fast, whereas this one maintains uh, longer. And here you can't see any at all. And this is on coughing. And you can see the, the secretion goes uh, much further when you cough and sneezing. Again, as you can see, sneezing, how much of particles is being aerosolized and uh, it comes out as droplets and going on as aerosols. And, uh, you know, it's, it's still here floating after some time uh, compared to those who wore uh, two-layered cloth masks and uh, three-ply masks. So basically, this, this video showed the three-ply masks very effective in containing the three-ply uh, surgical mask. It's very effective or the most effective in containing a respiratory secretion. And that's why patients should wear it. And asymptomatic people like also wear it because you do not know whether you're infectious at that time. Because just by talking, you can produce this, this respiratory uh, droplets and which has potential of aerosolization. And, uh, and if you wear a, uh, a 
two-layered face mask, there's also improvement, uh, but not so much with one layer, but still better than nothing at all. So goes to say, we usually ask the patients to wear a mask and we wear a mask. You can imagine the, the risk of transmission significantly drops. But that's why it's very important when we say you need to do your hand hygiene before and after you touch your mask. Because there's a way that you could suffer ten years. So with that, uh, I finished my presentation. I'd like to acknowledge Dr. Suraya and her team from the Infection Control Unit, Medical Care Division of Ministry of Health for the, for the excellent work and, and their slides. Also Prof. Victor and my colleagues in the Infection Control Department and Ministry Media to take any questions. Okay, uh, Sashila, thank you so much. Uh, I know you had a lot to cover, but I'm glad you ended off with the, one of the most basic infection control measures, which is the face mask. And maybe I'll ask the first question related to the face mask. Uh, well, we know as of today or yesterday, 15,000 odd healthcare workers around the country have been vaccinated with their first shot of the Pfizer vaccine. And in the coming weeks ahead, I think uh, more and more folks will get vaccinated. So if somebody who's vaccinated, do they still have to wear a mask? And perhaps you can explain why. Thanks for the question, Dr. I think that's, that's in, on everyone's mind as well. Uh, yes, they still need to continue to wear their masks for now. Uh, uh, as you know, the, the, the vaccine uh, looks as if it's very effective, but still we need two doses uh, for, it to, for its full effectiveness based on uh, the um, recommendation. Uh, also, uh, you know, um, the only thing I believe in that is foolproof is using the right PPE all the time because uh, you know with the new strains coming in the slight mutations uh, there's always chance of us getting uh, reinfected or infected so uh, that, that though the risk is very low there's still a chance so we should still wear our mask uh, especially if we are in a confined area and unable to maintain a distance with somebody else uh, I think it's very important for us to continue to wear our masks. Right, yeah. Uh, I think I think that it would need to be stressed again and again in the coming months. Uh, I think rightly put, I think we know that the vaccine, even though it looks so impressive, it is nothing is 100%. Number two, with the new variants coming on board, we, we really don't know for sure how the effective these vaccines are on the current variants and also maybe the new variants that come along. So unfortunately, I think we will still have to depend on our masks when we are caring for patients with COVID for quite a while. Now, there are a lot of questions concerning, I, I think they, they think, Prof, I think they think, Sashila, you're an engineer, but okay, I have no choice. I apologize. Huh? I have to ask you this question. Uh, okay, first off, all those chaps were asking about workplace uh, policy and ventilation at the workplace. Uh, there's a website, there's the uh, guideline from MOH in our website. So I urge you to go and read it there because if not, there will be a lot of things to cover here. But perhaps there's one question I'd like to ask Sheila. And here is, uh, someone has asked, uh, someone who says he's an ER resident, can I know where you put a stand fan inside a poorly ventilated tent or room? So obviously this is, uh, come from ER staff, behind the patient or behind the doctor? <laughs> okay, Sheila. All right, good question. So I assume if it's a tent, then it's a natural ventilation. So you will keep the both doors open the, behind the, uh, the 
the doctor, you know, so that there's air flow going out of the tent. Uh, so in this case, that uh, the, the flow, you should remember that the air flow must be from clean to less clean, so clean to dirty. So always assume the doctor's area is clean and then, you know, it's going to a less clean area. So the fan should face the door, the outlet, uh, and therefore, as long as it's going towards the door, uh, that's the most important thing. Yeah. So the question would be, uh, you can put it, not even if you put it behind the patient or behind the doctor, you should make sure that the flow is towards the patient rather than towards the doctor. And the fan shouldn't be hitting on your face. It should be hitting the other way. Yeah. That's the most important thing. Yes, but yes, what, I should but correct, one, correct. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But one of the but one of the things I wanted to say is, you know, with this natural ventilation, when you have this uh, cross ventilation to go on, uh, there is a caveat. You shouldn't be using cross ventilation if you're doing an AGP procedure, or if you think that exhaust is going to go and you know, or the outlet is is not safe. That you know, someone, the people out there. So the outlet should always be, uh, you know, going to some place that it's not going to infect people or animals and things like that. Yeah, I think generally, obviously, this putting a fan in in a poorly ventilated area like a, like a like a tent is not ideal. I think everyone would agree on that. But I know how hot and how uncomfortable it can be for the staff working in there. As a rule of thumb, if you are using a fan, just make sure you are upstream. All right, you are upstream. You do not want the air to come past the patient and onto you. I think that has to be reversed. Okay, all right, let's move on. There are tons of questions to deal with. We'll try to do as much as we can in the next five minutes. So, uh, Sashila, it's fast and furious, huh? okay? Okay, uh, Right. Uh, okay, there is increasing evidence that COVID-19 is transmissible via airborne uh, transmission, even without AGP. Is a surgical mask adequate for protection or do we have to use N95 all the time? Yeah, good question. I mean, uh, so, you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, even WHO shows, uh, in the healthcare setting, there's no evidence that without an AGP procedure that uh, there is airborne uh, transmission occurring uh, because, you know, everyone wears their PPE. The airborne transmission that is seen now is actually in a community setting where, you know, people are in a bus ride together or in a restaurant very close to each other. Then it transmits for a, quite a distance, but not even then they have done, they've shown that it, the whole restaurant doesn't get infected, maybe the people around them. So airborne meaning it goes for a certain distance, but not too far. So in a hospital setting, and that's why I showed you the picture of, of that, uh, that, that uh, video just now, uh, the aerosol is generated in, you know, in, a, in a confined area. It, you know, it depends a lot on whether the air is stagnating over there or not. So that's why ventilation in the hospital is very important. If you're going into a patient's room, you have to ensure that there's good ventilation and um, you know, in the condition of the patient is in. So uh, a long, a long uh, answer, to make the long answer short is, uh, currently there's insufficient evidence to say uh, airborne transmission in a hospital setting uh, is there other than when there is an aerosol generating procedure. And I must also say, based on our experience in our hospital, for patients who didn't undergo aerosol generating procedures, not high risk patients, uh, you know, we have just used our face mask, shield, patients who other patients have been next to these kind of patients, they have not gotten infected. It happened only when 
if they were in an aerosol generating sort of, of uh, environment. Yeah, thanks, Ashila. I, I just want to uh, maybe add another question, uh, another layer to that question. Uh, in many of our wards where patients are cohorted, um, of course, they are not negative pressure, they are in normal pressure rooms. And often, sometimes the, the windows are not open. Uh, and I think something, this is something that we have to look into. Uh, I know sometimes the COVID wards are on the higher floors and fears about other things happening from the higher floors for patient safety can come in. So what are your thoughts about trying to ensure there's better ventilation in these wards? Yeah, so I think, you know, I always, I worked in IMR before and I really loved it. It was all open and, and, and nice. That, that's the best for all our airborne precaution. But uh, now I work in Unity Hospital, it's all aircon and we're not allowed to open our windows of fear of condensation. So the best thing, the next best thing is, you know, I, I did, where the WHO document actually has got very good ideas on, and practical things that we can all do. So in these areas, actually, to, in this individual rooms, what you can do is actually put in an empty room. Speak to your engineers, find out what is the air intake, right? Put in an empty room. And this empty room will help with uh, maintaining the, uh, ensuring that the airflow, uh, you know, does not get contaminated. So the air is always going from a clean to a um, less clean area. So try to put up empty rooms, keep your doors closed where possible and speak to your engineers on, you know, putting HEPA filters in there. But you need to decide where you want to put the HEPA filters, but you need a long-term plan finally. But for short-term and intermediate, I think putting in empty rooms, uh, you know, if you don't have those negative pressure rooms, putting in these empty rooms just by putting plastic barriers, zipping plastic barriers, which we did for our feed spot, and then putting HEPA filters in there. I think that's that's quite good and quite effective. Okay, uh, Tashila, if it's okay, we'll run through two very short questions uh, to, to be fair to the folks who are watching it now. Uh, simple question, but I think it's important for people who are doing testing and screening now. For COVID screening, do you need to change gloves and plastic gown in between patients? Uh, COVID screening. So it depends again on if you're touching the patient, uh, you know, you must, and you're going to touch the next patient, yes, you must change your glove and, and gown. That's the principle of infection prevention. Because the idea is you want to protect yourself, but you're definitely protecting yourself. But you're not protecting the patient that way. Because when you wear a glove and you don't remove it, you're not going to do your hand hygiene. So the most important thing is wear your glove, remove it, do your hand hygiene and go on to the next patient. So if you want to use extended wear, then uh, you know you can uh, wear your gown underneath and just wear an apron, a plastic apron at the top if you want. Uh, so that that is a possibility. But ideally, um, it should be changed. Uh, and last question. I'm sorry, I, I can't un deal with all the questions. Uh, the last question on face shield. Uh, you mentioned it a little bit, but I think there's still some confusion about what impact a face shield may have on on pre, uh, preventing infection, face shield? So face shield, you know, that's why, you know, I gave you that, uh, the, the list on standard precaution. The role of a face shield is to prevent splashes, uh, splash contamination onto your eyes and nose. So for respiratory infections, you know, droplet and airborne, you know, these infections are transmitted uh, when the infectious droplet touches the mucosa of your mouth of the mucosa of your nose and your eyes. 
if you wear a face mask, which is usually, uh, you know, water repellent or uh, water repellent, it should be, then it's fine. But the fish, it doesn't protect your eyes and the mucosa on your face, so if, uh, of your eyes. So that's why we put the face shield on to make sure, you know, a patient is coughing, that that, that secretion doesn't get into your eyes. The other thing is, um, uh, you know, you wear the mask for such a long time, sometimes, you know, uh, patients are coughing on it, it could get contaminated or soiled and you're not aware. Also, you need to speak with your management to see whether the masks that you have are actually water repellent. If, uh, or, you know, if they're not, then there's a chance that your mask is not actually protecting you. And that's why that shield gives a barrier and protects your face mask as well as the mucosa of your eye. And that's why we wear a face shield. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Sashila. Thank you very much. Uh, just a quick note here. I know there are some questions regarding uh, uh, healthcare worker, what, what we do for a healthcare worker who has, has a post contact with COVID patients. There is a guideline in the Ministry of Health for this. So I urge you to look at that guideline because it will address the queries you have on, on that issue. Uh, so uh, unfortunately, time has caught up with us. Uh, I leaves me just enough time to thank uh, Prof. Sashila for her excellent presentation and her patience in dealing with all our questions uh, and being polite in the whole process, uh, keeping uh, teaching all of us. So uh, Sashila, thank you very much once again uh, from ICR and my ICID for your time uh, away from work. So please apologize to Prof. Adiba for stealing you away for the last one hour, okay? Uh, but don't tell her I said that. Anyway, uh, thank you very much, Sashila. So now, if, oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm glad to say, I guess time has really flown. Uh, this is the fifth and final webinar in the COVID-19 series, which is organized, co-organized by the Institute of Clinical Research at NIH and also the Malaysian Society of Infection Control and Infectious Diseases. So I hope you have found these five sessions very helpful. And uh, uh, as the uh, chairman, I'm just happy to that you have had such a fantastic response to our five webinars. So with that, I'm going to pass the mic over to our host, uh, Dr. Kalai, who is the director of the Institute of Clinical Research here at uh, NIH. Dr. Kalai? Yeah, thank you so much there, Dr. Chris Lee. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a long journey, hasn't it, for us? <clears throat> we started on the 3rd of February and you know, time has flown so fast, they finished five. Webinars. It started with uh, Dr. Yasmin, medical management of COVID-19 and uh, case studies. It has uh, such a great start that so many of you followed us throughout the journey. I'm glad to say that by the time we have come to the fifth webinar today by Prof. Sheila, we have crossed 10,000 followers on this webinar series. This is a really fantastic achievement. On that count, I'd like to thank each and every one of the speakers, Dr. Yasmin, Dr. Lee Hengi, Dr. Lee Chiu. Dr. Tan Hui Siu, and also Prof. Sashila um, just now for her excellent uh, talk on the infection control particularly. On behalf of ICR, I also like to personally thank uh, Dr. Chris Lee, who has made time and effort to be here with the team uh, who have been managing it well. Behind the scene, we have Yang Yi, as well as Dr. Cheng Hoon, who put together this webinar series with the initiation by Dr. Misha from the Malaysian Society of Infection Control and Infectious Diseases. We'd like to thank each and every one of you. We hope that uh, you have benefited from this series. We look forward to organizing another series on COVID-19 
perhaps on vaccines really and why we need to have vaccines and look at the issues around the vaccines, particularly among healthcare workers and the rest of us who have some questions to answer. With that, I'd like to thank on behalf of the Society, uh, Malaysian Society of Infectious Control and Infectious Diseases and the Institute of Clinical Research for putting together this very wonderful series on COVID-19. And I hope all of you have enjoyed the series as well as all of us have done so. Thank you very much and have a pleasant day ahead.